0: Welcome to Corbell Career Cast, the podcast from the Office of Career and Professional Development at the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. Today, we are joined by Corbell student Mary Cates, who will interview Corbell alum, Elizabeth Tromans, who works for the International Rescue Committee. Mary, do you want to take it away? Sure. Thank you. All right. So why don't we start out, Elizabeth, with you just introducing yourself and telling us what job you have now and when you graduated from corbel sure
1: thanks mary my name is elizabeth Trumans. i graduated from corbel in 2009 i'm working now at the international rescue committee i'm the deputy director for cash and emergencies so i lead our cash team that uh, supports our various country programs around the world um, sitting here at, at headquarters in new york
0: very cool. Okay, so you run the cash team. So does that mean you're fundraising?
1: A little bit. I do support various grants that are uh, coming online for the IRC at times. Uh, most of that work is done in our country program. So we're really responsible for the technical quality of the program. So that involves uh, supporting our 40 plus country programs around the world. That also involves um, creating guidance or technical tools uh, at the global level. It involves working with our networks around the world of other cash actors, UN and NGO and private sector partners, um, financial service providers, that kind of thing. So putting everything into place that will support the technical quality of the global programs.
0: And can you say what you mean by technical quality?
1: Sure. So if we think about the project cycle, so end to end of a cash program, um, what we are looking at is everything from assessment and design down to um, monitoring and evaluation. So technical tools might involve a rapid assessment tool for a new emergency, it might involve a monitoring tool, it might involve um, you know, contracts for our f- financial service providers who are helping us deliver the
0: cash, um, that, that sort of thing. Hmm. Um, and most of us are pretty familiar with IRC, but could you talk to us a little bit about the IRC mission and why you wanted to work there?
1: Sure. So the the mission of the IRC is is pretty narrowly focused on helping people affected by crises uh, recover and rebuild their lives. So we are talking here about the the humanitarian part of international work, right? We are less involved in the development space, um, very involved in acute emergencies, uh, particularly those in protracted crises.
0: Okay. So that's really interesting. Talk to me about kind of where humanitarian work and development intersect and then how they're different.
1: That is the million dollar question, the nexus. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, we obviously like responding in an acute or, or protracted crisis you will inch into that space right because if you know the 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 mission is helping people affected by humanitarian crises to survive recover and rebuild their lives so that is already crossing into um you know recovery is crossing into the development space right so um oftentimes i think you know specifically for cash which is my area so oftentimes what we're thinking about is are we designing our programming in a way that will help people longer term? Are we setting people up for success to be able to get through this period of shock, but um, to be a little better off at the end of that as well? So um, while we're not designing a long-term social safety net program, because that's not our mission, Mm -hmm. we would sort of work with governments and make sure we're aligning uh, the, the transfer value of whatever the, the government safety net program is, we might help to, you know, expand that program to include more people or to include top ups of people already receiving social assistance from a government, something like that. Where where we're thinking about the sustainability, even though cash, you know, humanitarian cash in and of itself isn't a sustainable intervention; it's not designed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's like small things we can do to try to help promote the the longer term resilience
0: of of the people participating in our programs. Sure. Um, So I'm looking at your resume, it looks like you did a lot of work in the Philippines, some emergency work. So can you give an example of how you would respond to an emergency, but then you might like hand off to someone who's doing a more, you know, who's trying to build like a network for more sustainable recovery? Um, You know, kind of the handoff from humanitarian to development work, but in in your work in the Philippines?
1: Sure. So I I worked, before I was at the IRC, I worked at Catholic Relief Services um, and started through their International Development Fellows Program. Um, And and CRS does span the humanitarian and and development transition in that case. because we were, you know, working with local partners who would be, you know, still operating past the point of of an acute crisis like the the typhoon. That's where I was most often involved in the Philippines was typhoon responses. Um, for the for the IRC, I think it's it's yes, it's looking at the partnerships um, who we're working with, and it is also then trying to help our local partners um, mobilize funding on their own for longer term programs it's like i mentioned working with governments and and making sure we're um coordinating that closely for any continuation of programming um and it's you know working with the un who might help resettle people back at home or or resettle to a third country um so it's yeah it really comes down to the partnerships i think
0: yeah how do you build those partnerships and 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 whose job is it to maintain them
1: that that's a good question. Um, it, it's something that so the IRC, for better or worse, there's pros and cons of this, but they've focused historically more on direct implementation of, of programs. Um, and now, you know, in the last few years, there is a more dedicated effort to uh, build partnerships, um, like you know mutually beneficial partnerships right like where where we're getting something and 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 the organizations we're working with are getting something and and hopefully that all that package um you know serves people better and helps people meet their needs better um and i how so how do we build them i it's been a really interesting experience in the ukraine response because this is the the first emergency response i've been involved with with the irc where there is a really explicit um Mandate and like very you know strict adherence to our goal of of trying to work with partners early on, uh, and and when it is the chaos of an early response, those partnerships there isn't the time to kind of build the relationship and the trust that you would ideally want to to do before a crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has been a lot of sort of just scoping out what are people working on and and having conversations and um looking at you know the the geographical gaps where in the country are people not getting services already um where there are high needs and so that's sort of how we framed the the partnerships uh that we were developing in ukraine but that all happened on a really abbreviated uh, time timeline so the ideal scenario is that you know we're looking at you know irc puts out a, a watch list every year of you know these are the the top countries that we think um you know, that like bad things are starting to happen and we wanna keep an eye on this and prepare for responses in these places. So that watch list, you know, ideally frames our partnerships moving forward. So one of the things we're really working on is making sure we have um, financial service providers who can operate in those countries. So at the the global level, we're working now on updating all of our um, financial service provider partnerships so that we know that we can respond in, you know, those watchlist countries, but, you know, also beyond those watchless countries.
0: Hmm. So it sounds like um, some of those relationships are built kind of in the moment and some of them are um, like cultivated over a longer period of time.
1: Correct. And, the, and the, you know, the partnership is only as effective as the relationships we have right and so ideally if we build those ahead of time in the right places we are better off when a crisis hits because that that trust is already there and we we know each other and what to expect
0: so i also wanted to ask you about what it was like when you graduated from corbel um how the job search was and how you got that first fellow with crs
1: so I graduated in 2009, which was the economic recession, and it took me a full year before I started working. Um, okay. It was very, it was tough. I, I had, a, I have a lot of really amazing memories of that time because I, I spent a lot of time with my grandma, which was fantastic. But I was, you know, full-time job searching and networking and talking to a lot of people and writing a zillion cover letters. Um, I think the thing, so CRS's fellowship program is... Fantastic. I have a really good base of knowledge of supply chain procedures of in kind distributions and warehousing and finance and how you code things that other technical counterparts don't have. And I have that because of the International Development Fellows Program, because we have to do those rotations. It is. Very competitive, so yeah. I highly recommend it, but I, it, it is also very competitive, so they require, uh, they, re, they do require you to have a master's degree, so if I, you know, if I didn't have my master's degree, I wouldn't have even been able to fill out the application. Yeah. Um, you have to know one of CRS's languages, mm-hmm. uh, which is French, Arabic, Spanish, I think Portuguese as well, um, you also have to have lived overseas i believe for a minimum of a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are the kinds of things you know i had been a peace corps volunteer so i had that but those are the things that they they're not even going to look at your application with without those things. So um that is yeah that's that's uh, a great program but also a highly competitive program. The job search was frustrating and at times demoralizing. As soon as i got the offer in April of 2010 and knew i would be starting in in July, that's when i you know, stop the job searching and can just enjoy life a little bit for those few months
0: before um, going to India for my fellowship. Yeah, job searching is super hard. Mm -hmm. Um, What advice do you have for someone who's job searching or someone who's hopping into this field? So I think
1: the number one piece of advice that I would give people if particularly if you want to work in the humanitarian space, but also development, is to take the tough posts, which are where you're going to get a job starting out, and by tough posts i mean those where you're you're probably going to also be making danger pay because it might be a bit insecure or there's a uh, you know a rapid emergency response happening uh, so the ones that are a bit harder to hire for is where there will be more openings you know that's just a fact of the matter and i think as much as possible to spend time working in the countries you know if if, if ideally down the road you would want to be in a technical kind of position like the one that I have right now, spend years and years and years working on those programs and implementing those programs. Like I I really strongly believe that the number one thing that qualifies you to be in a technical role, like a technical advisor role, like what I came through, is because you have implemented those programs. So if I see people applying for technical advisor jobs on my team, I would much rather see someone who's been implementing cash programs and emergencies for 10 years than someone who's already been a technical advisor with another organization for five years or 10 years or whatever. I I much more strongly value that implementation experience because otherwise you don't know the ins and outs of troubleshooting, like all of the little problems that arise. Like if you haven't had to solve those, you don't know how to advise on solving those as a technical advisor. It sounds really straightforward, but um, a lot of people want to jump really quickly into that technical track, but yeah, you yeah. have to implement the programs.
0: Can you give an example of a, a problem that would be hard to advise on if you hadn't dealt with it in the field?
1: Uh, what's a problem that's hard to advise on if you haven't implemented it in the field? I think, yeah, if, if thinking now about the the Ukraine response and in figuring out our, our geographical targeting, like I can sit and look at data from the displacement tracking matrix or whatever about different areas of Ukraine and I can see numbers um, but if I'm not in those locations having um, spoken to people who are affected by the crisis having spoken to governments who are you know trying to make sure people get assistance who need it um, talking to other cash actors who are working in that particular area I don't actually understand graphically for our for our program right like it's just um yeah and and sorting out the the coordination type of stuff that would be a good example of you you don't know how to advise on that if you haven't if you haven't done it um yeah there's a lot of examples
0: like that and so you think it's uh, like necessary both to have worked in the ukraine but also to have implemented other projects or which one's more important like having actually been in the place where you're trying to advise on or just having implemented projects in the field before
1: yeah i think if we're if we're looking at technical standards technical decisions from a global lens a diversity of geographic experiences mm-hmm. is useful mm-hmm. um, and a diversity of types of crises and types of programs is useful mm-hmm. um, and then, and then learning how to trust the people who are on the ground.
0: <laughs> you know the information firsthand. Interesting. Um, I did want to touch on that because when you were working with CRS, you were almost exclusively international. Is that correct? Yes. And then when you started working with IRC, you moved back to the United States.
1: Yes. So I, yeah, my last five years with CRS were all working as a regional emergency advisor. So I was deploying for rapid onset emergencies and doing a lot of the assessments and startups. And I got really tired. <laughs> and, um, and I took—I—I I got burned out and I, I took a year off to rest my brain and uh, recover from the hectic schedule. And as a part of that year really reflected on what what is the right next move do I just double down and you know make sure I'm going places where I can really articulate what my value add is as someone you know from a western country with a western education you know, speaking a limited number of languages what are the places that I can most be useful mm-hmm. um, is that, moving to Damascus and working on the Syria crisis. Is that a headquarters type of job? What are the personal things that I want? And um, decided I just didn't want to keep moving every couple of years and, and traveling 70% of the time. Yeah. And um, obviously, it was it's really valuable experience. It's experience that defines who I think I am in my career. But I ultimately wanted to be able to stay in one place and have a community and you know i'm now like you know doing stuff with my running club, and I have like a group of friends that isn't moving all the time. Um, So I've I've valued that a lot. Um, So I think it it really is a personal decision. There are people who do humanitarian work for their entire careers, and they just take longer breaks between their deployments. and that is, that is a perfectly acceptable way to progress your career. So is transitioning to a headquarters job for a while, yeah. I don't think headquarters is the place to go and die. I think that, <laughs> uh, you know, at some point we lose touch, we get a little out of reality with, with the programs that we use to implement. So, you know, I, I, I'll transition at some point too. And, you know, so I think there are various routes to take, but I
0: just got really tired. Fair enough. Um, sounds like you're finding some work-life balance in your current position, um, how did you try and find that when you were moving so much? What would you do to kind of stay grounded?
1: Um, I well, I didn't do it very well, which is why I <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can tell you what
1: not to do. It's it's don't <laughs> not take breaks between deployments. Okay, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like to, like taking the R and R's is so important. That's why they're there. You really have to take them, and and when you do take them, don't plan to go travel and see all the places you haven't seen just plan to take them to sleep and get a lot of massages and do some yoga or or whatever is your thing um but you know RR is super important taking breaks between emergencies super important um those are the things that i often didn't do well
0: (laughs) sure um i had one more question that i really wanted to hit on and that is about localization and um, i was wondering how you saw localization with CRS and how it was working as an international person in those settings. Um, If you could just talk a little bit about, about that.
1: Yeah, that's. I'm glad you asked. It's a really important topic. I think there's a category of things that I see my organizations are doing and there's a category of things that I see myself personally doing. Mm-hmm. CRS has a very explicit partner-first approach. Um, that's usually a Caritas partner, a church partner. Uh, they're the go-to wherever they're present and, and willing and, and, and that sort of thing. It It is much more seamless when that is the approach from the beginning. And there is already a built-in partnership network Um, that enables our localization goals a lot better. Mm -hmm. IRC, as I mentioned, is 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 just now switching to that. Mm -hmm. During the 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 height of the Black Lives Matter movement, IRC also we had our own internal reckoning with people questioning why do we have so many Western senior leaders in the organization? Why can we not Retain staff um, who identify as refugees who are or who are people of color, um, whether or not they're refugees, like, why do we have problems retaining people? What are the dynamics at HQ that support people of color to succeed? Who gets the promotion? So we've had a lot of changes internally, there is now a uh, uh, a diversity, equality, inclusion lead at the IRC who you know reports into a VP level, um, and in a you know different staff groups working on various issues. For me personally, I made a commitment to myself that the technical advisors that I hire on my team um, will be from and based in the regions that they're supporting. Uh so we really have decentralized the cash team. Um so we we still are a very mixed team. There are some um, you know, American staff, some European staff, some East African staff, Middle Eastern staff. So we're trying as much as po- I am trying as much as possible to make sure that the the technical advisors um come from the regions that they're supporting and have the relevant language and, and cultural skills.
0: Hmm. And it sounds like you're seeing that in the development and humanitarian space kind of since Black Lives Matter was at its peak.
1: Yes, I think so. And that doesn't mean there isn't space for an American raised and American educated individual within the humanitarian field. But I think it is up to the individual to reflect on what does that mean to be to be an American person working internationally in this space? And how how are we using the privilege and power that we are innately given for no particular reason other than our, our nationality or the color of our skin? How are we using that? How are we defining the way that we can best operate and have an impact? So I think that's something that I just, you know, would challenge everybody every individual to reflect on for themselves um, entering entering this field.
0: Hmm. Well, thank you so much. It was really great talking with you.
1: Yeah, thanks. thanks for having me. Nice speaking with you as well, Mary.
0: Thank you, Mary and Elizabeth so much for joining us today for this conversation. I think actually this conversation at the end was really interesting about things that the IRC and other organizations are doing to try to diversify the workforce. Um, so that was really interesting to hear. Um, thank you again, and we hope you will all join us next time on Provel CareerCast.